Let's go. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight is our first video recording of a podcast, so hopefully this will all go fine technically. Um, we're showcasing one of the great comedy films of all time, 1972's The Heartbreak Kid, director Elaine May's second feature film with a screenplay by Neil Simon based on Bruce, Bruce J. Friedman's story, a film which received two Academy Award nominations for co-stars Eddie Albert and Jeannie Berlin. I'm a huge fan of this nearly forgotten comedy and my writing partner, two-time Emmy and Golden Globe nominated writer-producer Billy Reback is just as much a fan of it as me, maybe more so. So who best to share the microphone tonight than with Billy Reback? Hi, Billy. Oh, hi. I, by the way, um, here's how much I like you. I put on cologne. How do I smell? <laughs> you smell great. Oh, great. Okay, good, good. <laughs> and I put up the poster for the Heartbreak Kid so I that see. we can be inspired. Sybil Shepherd holding Charles Grodin's head. I think she has him by the balls a lot in this movie, but she also has him by the head. Uh, something like that, yes. Absolutely. So, so before... I, no, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that when she first comes on screen, it's one of the most stunning apparitions in the history of beautiful women in a comedy. I mean, my God, the sun glinting and he looks down and he sees a vision. I mean, it's unbelievable. And he's smitten immediately, immediately. And he's on his honeymoon. And it's fantastic. So before we dive deep into this comedy classic, let's talk a little. I, I every week I talk to people about where they started watching movies where what was the theater of their choice when they were a kid so i know that you're originally from montreal you were born there you're a, a proud canadian I am. where where did you for what what was the what was your main theater when you were growing up or were there several there were several but there was a theater called the uh atwater theater right across from the famed montreal forum where the canadians played for many 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 decades and won many many stanley cups but right across was a thing called the Alexis Neon Plaza, and they had a bunch of theaters. And I saw this movie there with two of my best friends. We were pretty much the same age, and we were howling and squirming because it was our story. I think every guy of that age, what was I, 18, 19 at that time, and we're watching this lunatic do everything in his power to get this woman while he's on his honeymoon. It's insanity. But this is what beautiful women do to men. Not just at 18 or 19, but at every age. And we were we were literally squirming in our seats going, don't do it. Well, you're insane. We were yelling like like crazy people. But we were also laughing our asses off. I mean, there are so many classics. I'm going to tell you one quick story, which you I don't think I've ever told you. I, I years ago I had a meeting with Edgar Sherrick, who was one of the producers for a project that shockingly uh, never happened, like like many of my meetings. <laughs> and as we know, Jeannie Berlin uh, played the woman that uh, Charles Grodin marries. And she's not particularly becoming in the film. 
And Neil Simon was so dead set against the casting of Jenny Berlin because, according to Sherrick, because he said that's not the point of the movie, that he would leave a woman who's not particularly attractive and kind of gross for a stunning woman. I, you know, you can understand that on some crazy, sick level. He wanted Diane Keaton because the whole point was that Charles Gordon was so insane that he'd leave one, you know, a young, beautiful Diane Keaton for another woman who's, you know, probably prettier, but. And Keaton was was beautiful back then. And that's what Simon wanted, because he said that was the point that Grodin was so damaged. It made no difference who the wife was. He's still a lunatic and he did not get his way. And he was pissed to the very end, according to Sheriff. You know, I, I find that very interesting because you're right. Diane Keaton in 1972, she was just about to be Woody Allen's major right. player in his films. Right. She was adorable. It would have been a whole different movie. Lila is such a caricature I know. Of, a, of a Jewish bride gone. Just right. Like, oh. I, mean, I mean, she was hilarious. There's no question about it. But Neil felt that it sort of vitiated the impact of the movie. And he was angry to the very end. So I get it. I mean, listen, Jenny Berlin, nominated for an Oscar, well-deserved, absolutely hilarious, but who wouldn't want to leave her for Civil Shepherd? That was Simon's point, right? <laughs> I I find, first of all, we should tell the listeners who are interested in this the movie. The viewers, the viewers tonight. That, viewers. Oh my God, that's right. We've got viewers. Hello, everybody. This is our coming out party. Um, Speak for yourself. Thank you. Thank you. This movie is virtually unavailable thanks to the Bristol Myers Pharmaceutical Company. Many years ago, they got into the, they wanted to get into the film business. Like a lot of these conglomerates, they decide right. to spread out into new businesses. And it was not a success. And somehow they own the Heartbreak Kid and they refuse to do anything with it in terms of distributing it into new Blu-rays or DVDs. Yep or even just a television license so Turner Classic Movies can run it. So we are forced to watch, when we see the name Heartbreak Kid in the in the queue, we are forced to watch the remake, which is terrible. Hold on, hold on. How are you forced to, I steadfastly refuse to, I saw the trailer and in the trailer, they had a farting scene. I'm going, what have you done? Look what they've done to my song, Ma. A farting scene in Heartbreak Kid, what? It was so idiotic. No, I never thought far, I never will. It, it gets far worse than that. Uh, so, uh, at one point in the movie, Malin Ackerman, uh, Ben Stiller gets stung by a jellyfish, right. and Malin Ackerman actually pees on him. That was oh, sure. It seems sure. I mean, this movie takes subtlety and tramples it to death. Where did, where, where did comedy go so wrong? I mean, you and I talk about this all the time, but. Ah, that makes me cra it makes me crazy. There was nothing resembling that. Even this sexuality was so subtly, brilliantly done with the fireplace scene. One of the greatest scenes in the history of mankind. I mean, my God. Oh, see how we, close we, you can get without touching mean, it was Bill, Billy and I, Billy and I are both comedy writers. We spend most of our waking life coming up with new ideas and executing them to paper. And we are constantly bemoaning the fact that that subtlety has disappeared in many ways from comedy play on words, good dialogue. When was the last time you remember a good line of dialogue in a comedy? Come on. But this movie, well, first of all, it's written by Neil Simon, but not right. an original of his. It was actually no. based on a story by Bruce J. Friedman. Right. 
Right. And you've got Elaine May directing. And Elaine May, for those of you who don't know who Elaine May is, Elaine May came to prominence in the 1950s with a very celebrated improv act with uh, Mike Nichols. It's called Nichols and May. And they were all over New York in the 50s. At the same time, Woody Allen was doing his uh, stand-ups and everything. They were very celebrated. They had met in Chicago when she was the founding member of a Chicago comedy group. And um, so she she was very steeped in comedy and became a director. Hasn't directed a lot of films, but right. certainly has directed some good ones. I believe she made her directing debut with a Walter Matthau movie called A Leaf. And right. movie, which is also is completely hysterical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, you wonder, is it because she's a woman? Because, my God, she understands comedy to the core. I mean, Nichols and May were brilliant. And Mike Nichols obviously went on to direct some incredible films. You know, he had a graduate, most notably for me. But while I may, may you know, maybe she didn't want to work more. I doubt that. I mean, she's she really gets it. I and mean, you compare the remake to the original it's just it's la it's laughable which is the only thing about the remake that's laughable is that it got made i'm i, I love elaine may she had a few she had, i think she had three short plays that she wrote and directed on broadway or it may have been part of a trilogy i think it was in a woody allen play a an elaine may play and, and another one i don't remember who the third playwright was and i didn't see it unfortunately it didn't run a long time in new york but it was supposed to be great i mean she's fantastic so He's yeah very She's very close friends with my friend Julian Schlossberg, with whom I'm doing the other podcast with. For those right. of you who are interested, I have a second podcast called Tales from Hollywood Land, which is now starting to get some attention. Uh, but Look how you slipped that in. I mean, that was good. That was very marketing, <laughs> marketing. Julian is friends with Elaine May, very close friends. I think he produced that trilogy you just mentioned on Broadway. Okay. And he said that he was in either, it was either Arthur Friedman, my other partner, or Julian, um, the, doing the podcast with all with both of them, they said that they were sitting with Elaine May and Ben Stiller came up to her at one point and wanted to apologize for the remake. Oh, seriously, seriously, wow. I think I think Ben knew that the movie was a bust. Well, um, you, you read the screenplay and you go, no, why would you ruin? I, it's just it's crazy. They did Gone with the Wind today. It would be about farting. Yes, we 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 believe as comedy writers, less farting, better dialogue. Exactly. Absolutely. And by the way, we should mention for those who don't know, and if you can, I found the movie by the way online, sort of. I I bought a. I guess it's a pirated copy off someone's television where they got it, or from a theater. I don't know from a theater, but for five dollars, and it's a perfect copy, perfect. But this is years ago. Yeah, I, I might have mentioned it to you. And we should watch it one day just because I haven't seen it in so long. Um, but I was lucky enough to find a copy. And I'm sure you could probably, without telling anybody, you could probably copy my copy. So there you go. Well, hopefully Bristol Myers will let it go eventually so people can see it. Now, I've, I've got to show a picture of Charles Grodin. Ah. Because this movie is, is, I guess, akin to a tour de force for Mr. Grodin. Yep. And I actually have some background on Mr. Grodin. His, Please. Uh, he was born in Pittsburgh. He's April 21st, 1935. His name was Charles Sidney Grodinsky. But Hard to believe, another June show business. How could it be? <laughs> so he changed his name to Groden for obvious reasons. Wait, 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 wait. Why obvious? Why? 
Why do Jews? Have, it, it makes me crazy. If you can tell that he's a Jew watching him for five seconds, you blind. I mean, it comes. You know, it's a very good crazy. question. But why did, crazy. why did Aaron Schwatt become red buttons? You know, because uh, nobody could pronounce his last name. That's true. That's true. And, you know, there's, there's a, <laughs> that's true. Good point. Right. Um, but Charles, um, he first came to fame as the rather dreamy doctor in 1967's Rosemary's Baby. Right. And he, she's the one that uh, Mia Farrow goes to first before her strange neighbors introduce us to Ralph Bellamy, who was the, the I guess, literally the witch doctor in that movie. Right. Uh, so, yes. And um, but here's something interesting about Charles Grodin. After the success, success of... Um, Heartbreak Kid. Rosemary, well, Rosemary... Oh, Rosemary's Baby. Right, right, right. He turned down the Dustin Hoffman role in The Graduate. Ah, interesting. I... I did not know that, as they say. And he would have been perfect. I mean, not that Dustin Hoffman wasn't genius, obviously. What does did he ever explain why he turned it down? I would have to read his autobiography. I'm sure there was a reason. Um, interesting, because that's a Michael Nichols directed movie, and he certainly yeah. would have been aware of Michael Nichols. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. Maybe he's doing something else. Because you wonder who saw the after Rosemary's baby, who saw the comedy ability? that deadpan thing you watch rosemary's baby you're not going that's a funny man so who do you think first i wonder about that i don't know i mean yeah well you know you watch him just quick thing i assume you've seen his multiple interviews with johnny carson because they're classics he had a a persona on talk shows that was second to none i think he really got it some actors get frozen in the headlights sometimes when they go on these shows they don't quite know what to do charles Grodin knew exactly what to do look at a character he went he had a character a cantankerous curmudgeon deadpan he would rip carson who would rip him back they had a, a verbal duel every time and from what i understand i read this somewhere he was so brilliant on the show. I mean, one of Johnny's 10 best guests ever, I think, that he was signed to a contract to come back frequently because the response to him and Carson was incredible. I mean, this is one of the truly underappreciated funny men, you know, in the last, what, 75 years? Let's call it the history of comedy. I mean, really, just brilliant. Oh, God, I how much <laughs> I love Charles Rodinsky now that I know he's a Jew. Oh, sure, sure. Well, other films that he was terrific in, by the way, another role he turned down, he turned down the Richard Dreyfus role from Jaws. Matt Hooper, the, you know, the the shark right. expert. But right. I think I think I, you know, I don't see that as much as I see right. the uh uh you know Dreyfus as more of a straight role. Then he was in same time next year on Broadway, which really burst burst him out. And yep. he's in Heaven Can Wait. He plays uh, the secretary to the character that Warren Beatty has to uh, uh, fill in with. And then he's in Seems Midnight Like Run. Midnight Run, of course, with De Niro. He's in Seems Like Old Times with Goldie Hawn. They're adorable yep. together. I think that's yep. another uh, Neil Simon. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He plays the filmmaker in the Jessica Lange King Kong, which the people don't remember in that that ridiculously crazy movie. Took King Kong, but turned down The Graduate. Who's your agent, Charles? <laughs> wow. Wow. 
And then he comes back. I think he does another Neil Simon, the lonely guy. I think that's, uh, is that also Neil? No, I don't Martin? think so. Okay. No. So he does the lonely guy with Steve Martin. And then he, of course, he gets a lot of attention for playing opposite as St. Bernard in Beethoven. Which but, I, but, let, yes, which I miss. But go ahead. Go ahead. Let, 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 but let's, let's describe his character in the heartbreak kid. I sure. mean, basically sure. he's, he's Lenny Cantro. And how, how would you describe him? Well, let me just th throw one thing in, because when Steve and I write, we, for some reason, we seem to come up with great character names. And with the help of Google and some inspiration, the character names seem to really fit the characters. You can't get better. I never heard the name Cantro anywhere. I love the name. I, I, I don't know what it is. There's something about it. It's so sublimely Jewish and nerdy. It's just such a weird, great name. I mean, I love the name. He is a miserable, miserable, unhappy human being and who is never satisfied. He's just never, ever happy. But he's fascinating because he's one of the greatest liars of all time with that, that deadpan, straight face look. And he gets away with murder in the movie. And for some reason, because he's so incredibly charming, you don't hate him. You 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 understand that he's just an unhappy, a fundamentally miserable human being, and you you love him for it, and it's very rare. And it's partially Neil Simon's genius writing because he's a genius. I mean, I don't care what anybody you know. Neil's had his detractors, which makes me crazy, but Charles Grodin was so unbelievable in this film. I I, I can't think of somebody else who could have done the role better. Can you? No, no, no. I think that uh, you're right. He has a charm. He's slick. He's yeah. a little bit of a finagler. He, he's and and the way he delivered his dialogue. I mean, oh. just it's it's just so incredible. I mean, he's just I guess his profession is a sporting goods salesman. Right. He deals in bats and balls, according to Eddie Albert. Right. And he's, he's just a, a bullshitter. He's just one of the greatest bullshit artists of all <laughs> time. And you love him. It's amazing. It's true. You, it's true. I mean, we were all, I think what you were talking about earlier is as boys in our late teens or early 20s, we were all getting, we, we, we became Charles Grodin because we're, we're exposed to an incredible situation where Sybil Shepherd arrives. Sybil Shepherd, my God, was there, yeah, anybody, I know. was there anybody who looked like this in America at all? I mean, first of all, Sybil Shepherd by 1972. Well, first of all, we all know that well, she's originally from Tennessee. She's a Memphis right. girl. Right. Um, uh, she's not surprisingly, she started her career as a fashion model. What a shock there. Right. She won beauty contests. Uh, apparently in 1970, she was on the cover of Glamour magazine. And Peter Bogdanovich's wife at that time, Polly Platt, saw the magazine at a Ralph's grocery store in L.A. and said, that's our J.C. in the movie The Last Picture Show. Right. Of course, The Last Picture Show was a phenomenon in 1971, the year before Heartbreak Kid. It, won a, it was nominated for a ton of awards, and it was Sybil's first movie. Black and white, and I think she was naked in it for a little bit, wasn't she? Yeah, she was on that diving board in the swimming yep. pool, exactly. And Sybil Shepherd, she was just, um, you know, Hollywood has generated a lot of great beauties, you know, going all the way back to the silent era. 
Sure. But I'll tell you, in the early 70s, Sybil Shepherd came out like gangbusters. Like, who is that? And well, she other, was, yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. She was talented. I mean, she, she, she had a natural kind of way about her that went along with her beauty. I think that she she was very, very good in the last picture show, which is a, yeah. you know, Bogdanovich poured <laughs> himself into that movie. That was in and the way she poured herself out of that bathing suit. She was <laughs> pretty incredible. The thing that, I don't know if people talk about it, they, they must, but what she was in The Heartbreak Kid, she was a forbidden fruit. I mean, Lenny Cantra was very obvious, I'm back to the Jewish thing, but I, I don't think I've thought about this before, but she was the ultimate Gentile princess. And it was so not what he ever been exposed to. I mean, Jeannie Berlin, the ultimate annoying Jewess, reinforcing every horrible stereotype, but so funny that you forgave her. And that's that's the way she was directed, the way it was written. Again, why he wanted Diane Keaton. That was, there, again, back to that point. But he sees this perfect blonde beauty who represents everything he's never seen before, never touched, never been around. And he's he's helpless. He's She's irresistible. And the harder she plays not to get, screw that up, you know what I mean? She plays incredibly hard to get the more he wants her and, and he will do anything and everything in his power, by the way, with no remorse of any kind, none. It's, he's an unadulterated asshole. And yet you're kind of rooting for him because Jeannie Berlin is so obnoxious in the film. But when she comes on the screen, as I, as I alluded to before, in the sun, and uh, he says, you're, I think he says, what, you're in my spot, right? Oh, well, that's what's cool. Let's let's, by the way, let's show a picture of Jeannie. This is in the sports car driving down to Florida from New York. We should mention the fact that the, the basic setup in the story is is that Lenny meets uh, Lenny meets Lila in New York and they fall in love. And Lila seems like a pretty, pretty. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. They fall in love, sort of. She won't let him sleep with her until they're married. So he gets married. He's insane. He's insane. And the second he has her. He's done. He's out. Of, he got what he wanted. And as I said before, he's an unhappy soul. He's never going to be satisfied. I swear to you what they could have done. I mean, the movie ends brilliantly, but he's with Sybil Shepherd, and he looks off and he sees a woman who's better looking than Sybil Shepherd, And he starts going after her as the movie ends. That's not how it ended, but that, that would have been great because that was the point of the whole film. I mean, the way they did it, which I don't want to give away was understated and brilliant. But that's who he was. He got what he wanted and he was done. He was absolutely done. Would have been more interesting for the time with Diane Keaton, but that's who he was. He was never satisfied with his life. And so he sees Sybil Shepherd, and she is a goddess. She's an absolute goddess and so ice cold, so not oh. nice, not nice. I mean, distant. And the more she does that, the worse he he falls in love. I mean, it's truly it, what it is. It's passion at first sight. It's not love. I don't think that Lenny Cantrell was capable of love. Would you agree with me on that? I would agree with you. I think the other thing we should point out about Lila is that she's really annoying. I mean, she's uh, yeah. It's an hysterical sequence, and I don't think we're giving it away. We'll try not to give away too many spoilers because I know a lot of you haven't seen this. But um, she, they're in bed, they're making love, and Lila insists that Lenny tell her how good it is. And right. Lenny's concentrating on enjoying the sex. But right. Lila, Lila, at one point, 
she's so uh, she tells him, tell me who it is, tell me who it is. And he says, I, I don't have, do, do I have to give bulletins in the middle of lovemaking? Hilarious. So hysterical. And well, then after the lovemaking, she goes in the other room and gets a chocolate bar and comes running back, jumps on the bed. He starts coughing. It's just a very weird moment. And she thrusts a, st- a chocolate bar in his face. And he turns and says, please don't put his chocolate bar in my face. <laughs> and they are already done. And they've been married oh. for two days, if that. Oh. He hates her at that moment. It's, it's, it's instant hate. Passion at first sight with Sybil. It's instant hate in that moment. By the way, the word bulletin in bed is this funny word. It's the classic meal sign. Who else could come up with that word? I don't, you know, could have said, I don't need, I don't know, notes. I don't need instructions, but who needs bulletins? I mean, bulletins. Funny, you know, as we know, orally, A-U-R-A-L-O-Y, it's just a funny word when it's when it's in bed. It's just, it's absolutely hilarious. Oh, my God. And that's our, our first love, wordplay. We love great wordplay. Yeah, yeah. Well, words, you know, this is ostensibly how right now during Two Strikes, we're making a non-living, but that is how... We made a living up till now. So anyway, yeah, that that scene is. And do we want to give away any other scenes or not really? Well, I think we'll we'll, we'll t- touch on it. We should would probably tell a little bit about what happens in the story, as you'll see as you're watching it. Uh, their honeymoon plans are in Miami Beach, so they head down to Miami Beach, and on the first day, uh, Lila apparently doesn't know anything about sunblock, and she gets a massive sunburn. Ah. And it's 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 actually great for Lenny because she's now has to stay in the room. She's right. covered with cream. Well, and- let me let me just throw out that when when the camera closes in on her unbelievably sunburned back, that red seems to leap off the screen. Whoever did the makeup, I mean, you felt and this is you know way before modern technology. This is what fifty one years ago, something like that. Yeah, fifty one years ago. Um, that that makeup was so genius. I mean, you could feel her pain. You're looking going, oh, how dumb could it When did she not realize that she was toast? I mean, she was burnt to a crisp. And yes, go on. And so that gave him his excuse to leave. Exactly. So he he's now seen uh, Sybil. Uh, I believe they met on the beach, as you said. Right, right, right. And uh, Sybil Shepherd. I mean, the word vision doesn't begin oh, to explain absolutely. what Sybil Shepherd on a, in a bathing seat on the beach was. It's just, uh, it's like all the sirens of Ulysses calling out at once. And the so now he's starting to think, how do I get to see this girl kind of behind Lila's back? And the next day, Lila says, I put cream on, I can now sit 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 in the sun with you or sit down you know where's you can't sit right. in the sun you can't sit in the shade there's rays in the shade you can't leave the room you right. gotta stay right. here what the are desperation you in his voice it's fa- he's just lying over oh, he'll do anything to see Sybil Shepherd. right so lila says what are you gonna do oh there's some paperbacks in the i'll <laughs> right. so right. he he dashes down to the beach and then he's lying on the beach hoping and praying you'll see her again kelly Kelly, and all of a sudden, this vision appears, looks down at him, and says, "You're in my spot. You're in my spot. You're in my spot." And he, and then they have this clever repartee, and all of a sudden, he starts figuring out ways to spend time with her. So he, eventually, I think he goes out on the family yacht, uh, Eddie well, Albert. But remember what remember what happens. So 
she mentions they're leaving at what's let's say three o'clock. And so probably at two fifty-eight, Eddie Albert, who detests Lenny Cantrell, he starts to pull the ship out of out of out of dock. And Lenny jumps onto the ship, just misses falling to the water. I remember he goes, uh, oh, thanks for waiting, sir. Thanks for waiting. And he clearly was not waiting. He was trying to ditch him so badly. And it's just hilarious because he's kissing this absolute patriarchal asshole's ass so deeply because he wants her, his daughter so badly. It's just, it's another one of those dead pen throwaways. Thanks for waiting, sir. And Albert looks at him like, you've scumbag piece of shit i mean it's unbelievable there he is it's unbelievable eddie albert was brilliant in in the cast in the history of casting probably one of the top 10 castings ever in terms of character roles eddie albert most of us who grew up in the 60s right remember him as a comic actor on a television series called Green Acres. Green Acres. Green Acres is the place to be. <laughs> right. And uh, opposite Ava Gabor. And Eddie, but Eddie's career goes much further back than that. Eddie Albert, whose real name was Eddie Albert Heimberger. So I, I have a I have a feeling that uh, Eddie was also Jewish. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so he changed his name. Denzel Washington is Jewish. Come, come on. Everybody. Right, don't Jews own Hollywood? What did you say? Go ahead. I said Denzel Washington is Jewish. This is how (laughs) excited Jews get. When they find out somebody's a Jew, they go completely crazy. My father used to say that. He'd go, Willie Mays might be Jewish. No, Daddy, he's not. He's not. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, Eddie was a native of Rock Island, Illinois. Uh, He made his film debut in 1938. Wow. So he goes all the way back. But he... he, um, he took off some time. He was actually one of the earliest performers in television. He was on a television show in 1936. Whoa, what? And, he, and actually, he wrote one of the earliest <coughs> teleplays in television history. So Eddie Albert, this marvelous actor, was at the very beginnings of television. Wow. And then he um, he he joined the Escalante Brothers Circus. He was a high-wire performer. And he went down to Mexico and performed with a circus. But in reality, this is true, he was working for U.S. Army intelligence. He was photographing German U-boats in Mexican seaports for the U.S. Army intelligence. Who knew? Who knew? Then he joins the Navy. He goes to Tarawa in the (laughs) mid-Pacific. I think that's in the Marshall Islands. And he saves something like 40 Marines because he wow. was a coxswain on a landing craft and went and helped help save Marines. I think he won the bronze, was awarded the bronze star. So he was a World War II hero. He came back and got heavily into acting. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar in 1954 for Best Supporting Actor for Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. And then, of course, he was also, as I mentioned earlier, he was nominated for his second Oscar for The Heartbreak Kid. But he's known a a lot of comedy in his life, but he's definitely not a comic actor in this movie, The Heartbreak Kid. He is a stone wall. Oh, but no, no, no. But it's a hilarious performance. I mean, my God. Oh, no, it's comedy at its finest because... He opposite Lenny is one of the great Titanic struggles in the history of verbal comedy 
that duel when they're at the dinner when well they go into the to the uh, I guess the dining room or the den right because Eddie Albert will do anything to get rid of Lenny Cantor to get him away from his daughter anything and they have a man off that I don't want to give anything away we won't because some people yeah it's it's one of the great uh, uh, dialogue scenes ever because on the one hand you have this stone faced dad. And Cantro is he figures he's got it in the bag. He's got Sybil. Right. Right. What does he say? He says to him, he says, you know, I, I've just fallen head over heels with your Kelly. I mean, in, in reality, it just one look did it. Just what a dad right. wants to hear from right. his potential son in law. Right. But I, but there it, happens to be a problem. I right. I, I, no, I, I was trying yeah. tries to buy him off, basically. I mean, he'll do anything to get rid of him, but he's never encountered. It's an immovable force versus an irresistible object. I mean, he's never encountered anybody like Lennon County. His his stick-to-ness, his assiduousness in pursuing this woman. Have we ever seen anybody this cuckoo in a who will do virtually anything? Remember the scene? I don't want to give the whole thing away, but the scene at the dinner table with Audra Lindley, who's again brilliant in the film, just again, total deadpan, stone-faced, but she's sweet. And you, you remember, she says something about Oh, she read, oh, no, no. She says something about a, a column she read in the paper that day. She was trying to be philosophical. And, uh, and he says something like, oh, she's talking about deception or something. And of course, he's one of the great deceivers of all time. And she talks, she's talking about vegetables or something. And he says, I remember the line. He says, cauliflower, there's no deceit in cauliflowers. I I don't remember where he came up with that or how there was, I don't remember the the segue into that but there's no deceit in cauliflower and you go oh my god and she buys it she completely but again bullshitting his way into her heart that's what she wants there's no deceit in cauliflower what does that mean well he we should, tell, we should tell the viewers that he's complimenting her on the meal that she's oh, made for them okay them. that was it right but, right so exactly uh the look on sybil she- sybil shepherd you know Obviously, the key to acting sometimes is is not dialogue. It's right. how you're re- reacting. And the look on Sybil Shepherd's face during this whole confrontation between Dad and Lenny is so classic. She's I think she's chewing on an olive and she's uh-huh. just looking at her dad. She's somewhat in shock by his comments. And she's and she, it's just very, very funny. It's just right. everything Sybil Shepherd does in this movie is just perfect. Well, I, I mean, think she's. Right. I'm sorry. She, she's just getting up in the fact that somebody is so crazy. I mean, she's got a huge ego, which we all would if we look like that. And she's just getting off in the fact that two powerful men are in this behemoth struggle for her. One wants to sleep with her and one doesn't want to let him or let her out of his house. I mean, it's it's such an ego boost. And she's just, it's like watching a tennis match between two great players. That's really oh, what it is. It is, it is, right? it is. It is, absolutely. We're seeing, it. that's why I'm so disappointed that the movie's not available for everybody because we need laughter now in this country yeah. more, more than, than anything. Yeah, My absolutely. goodness. And the laughter, we the, the jokes we hear these days, like we were talking earlier, a lot of it is very crass. It's yeah. lazy writing. This is Neil Simon at the top of his game. Yeah. Lane May, uh, you know, Elaine May just just nailed it. By, by the way, I, I should mention uh, earlier, I mentioned that Elaine May uh, directed um, a new leaf, a new leaf. And she got a directing deal to do that. 
It was the first time a woman in Hollywood got a directing deal since wow. Ida Lupino. Wow. Back in the 50s. Wow. And Ida Lupino, you know, she was, I think, the only female member of the directing's, Directors Guild for many years. But Elaine May, between Elaine May and Neil Simon and this cast, they kept on clicking along the way. And that's why we yeah. love this movie so much. Well, was it nominated? Steve? You probably was it. It wasn't nominated for Best Picture. What? No way. No, no. Right. I think they just see. This is the year of The Godfather. Right. So I have a feeling that The Godfather took a lot of the glory. In fact, I think. Um, uh, let's see. Genie uh, uh, could, could have been nominated, but it, there's no. But I don't think it was nominated for Best Picture, although it should have. But this movie yeah. is is it just plays and plays and plays, and. Um, and nobody talks about it now because, as you said several times, it's not available. So people don't know about it, which right. is just and, a tragedy. It really and is. They, a and I think the, the remake got so much bad blood that it's right. soured the brand. I'm hoping that Bristol Myers does eventually do something. I think they will because obviously they can make money from something and money drives the business, as we know. Wait a minute. Hold on. Money drives. Wait a minute now. Alert the media. Alert. <laughs> Question for you. Why do you think? Because it did not do well when it came out. Why do you think? That's a really good question. I actually was going to look up the box office on it. Um, I don't think it was a hit at all. No. It, it became one of those hits later on, I guess, while it was still available. And, and now nobody discusses it. But I'm almost sure it did not do great at the box office. And I don't know. Well, I haven't. Well, here, here, the only thing that IMDb Pro lists is the fact yeah. that it did in US Canada, it did 12 million. So well, in that's... $1972, uh, I think uh, Arthur told me, my friend Arthur Friedman told me that the budget for uh, Heartbreak Kid was around two and a half to three million. Okay. So that, that movie made some money. Uh, in, in comparison, the budget for the remake was 60 million. Well, it's see, insane. It's you've, just, you've just nailed the problem. How? How much does a fart machine cost? I mean, my God, it's it's so sick. Now, okay, but you, as you always say, so two and a half million, and then how much in marketing? Was that another two Probably or three? Probably another million or two uh, back in those days. So this movie right. definitely made money, and then they sold it to television. And right. there was the waterfall that exists today, although it's different different things. Now we have streaming. Um but it wasn't a blind. I mean, it wasn't a blockbuster. I mean, no, you know, twelve no, million. No. no, no, not at all, not at all. But it certainly burnished Sybil's career. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, Grodin's career. Both of them. Uh, well, Sybil Shepherd eventually becomes very much involved with Peter Bogdanovich, and Peter right. Bogdanovich puts her into two musicals, both of which bomb. Right. So she her movie career kind of floundered a little bit. But then she gets into television and Bruce Willis Bruce joins Bruce Willis for Moonlighting. And that was a huge hit for her. Yep. And uh, that their, their repartee, once again, great dialogue, great repartee and characters. And yep. I've actually got to go back and see some of those. I haven't seen those in years. And then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Groden starts to get other roles. And he's definitely a, a comic leading man. And uh elaine may not directing a lot but she is directing um still very active in her 90s uh sybil is uh i believe very active she's uh, i think she's i'm not exactly sure what she's doing these days i'd like to get her on my podcast 
but uh, I may have better luck getting Jeannie Berlin. And Jeannie Berlin, um, who does also does some writing, uh, Jeannie Berlin was recently in The Fablemans, the Spielberg right. movie. Right. But what Jeannie Berlin has done for years is she's an acting teacher and very, very renowned for that. And certainly for comedy. I mean, she understands comedy. Did we mention that, she, of course, she's Elaine May's daughter. So right. I don't know if that's, I'd like to think that Elaine May said, yeah, she's my daughter. Okay. But she's so funny that it's nothing to do with being my daughter, although it does, because that's why she's funny, because Elaine May is her mother. But she got the role on her own merits is what I'm saying. I'd like to believe that. And I, I'm pretty sure. I don't think Elaine May would have put anybody in any movie ever if she didn't think they were the best person for the part. So, right? I mean, Jenny Berlin was an unbelievable contrast. But then again, Diane Keaton, I keep going back to that. I'll never forget when he told me. I can picture it like yesterday. And I went, Edgar, how is that? How did he said Neil Simon would come to rehearsals and just sit there with that glum look in his face that he was famous for and just so pissed. But anyway, um, the, the, I guess my, my real question is what didn't really resonate? I mean, 12 million is fine, but what do you think it was because back then, you know, now the anti-hero is so popular, which makes you and me crazy because we like to write likable characters. Uh, I guess, I don't know. Well, maybe here's, just here, here's a clue. Here's a clue. My yeah. wife, my wife watched the movie with me very early on in our relationship and right. she found the movie very depressing. I don't know if the movie resonated with women ah. as much as it resonated with our peer group. I'm God. sure it didn't. I'm sure it didn't. And yeah. I understand that. You're right. You're because, right. First of all, you've got Sybil Shepherd. Every woman who goes to see this movie is already feeling somewhat inferior looking right. up at the Right. And then right. they look at Jeannie's character, Lila, as a, as kind of a caricature, not right. the most flattering portrait of a woman, right. although hysterically right. funny. Yeah, no, I think that in many ways, you've got to have an audience to be a hit. You've got to have an audience to appeal to both sexes. And this is probably a show that the guys laugh more than the women. I'm sure I, I don't think I've ever met a woman who's seen the movie ever. So there you go. You know, one and she hated it. So there you go. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, and I don't know a guy who's seen it who hasn't gone ballistic laughing. You know, if they've seen it 28 times or once who loved the shit out of it. So I think your theory is, is a really good one. But you know what? Didn't pull any punches. That's what I. And the other funny thing is that very few people remember that Neil Simon wrote it. You know, we asked people to name you know seven neil simon movies or seven neil simon plays they're never going to mention the heartbreak kid never don't know why it's probably it's, some people think that it was written by elaine may because elaine may you know wrote some great movies elaine may was nominated for an oscar for writing uh heaven can wait with warren baby yeah no no, no. he's got this some big a, credits right no this is a brilliant a book this is a brilliant brilliant uh female person who can do she's a triple quadruple octuple threat she can do anything and by the way Nichols and may together were genius absolute genius and you know you said just and again I, I never know the truth of these things you said they were an improv duo i don't really think they did improv i mean they had written sketches that were timed and honed perfectly the comedy was calibrated to the to the tiniest degree so um Billy, would you do me a favor and lower your camera a little bit so I can see your full head? Yes, I'm only getting—I was only getting your eyebrow, although it's a very yeah, no. nice eyebrow. Thank you. No, I had them done earlier, so I appreciate that. <laughs> right, right after they put the cologne on, you know, I—I yeah, I, I, I care good. about you, and it's a nice cologne, by the way. It's too bad you're not here. 
what, um, what, what is it? What kind of cologne is it? I, I spared all expense some strip in Esquire magazine that I rubbed my wrist on and um, <laughs> have no idea what it's called. It was free, came with the magazine. And I actually like it, but you know the strip was free. The cologne's going to be a little bit more, so uh, I think it's already it's already worn off. Uh, anyway, so I'm telling I'm I'm giving away all my secrets uh, before every date. I buy a magazine. That's what I do, pretty much. So. <laughs> so, uh, this is so much fun. I mean, this movie uh, just plays and plays, and I hope, I, like I said earlier, I hope it, it suddenly appears again. Um, grow, how, how do you yeah. go ahead? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. How did how did Heartbreak the remake do? I know it cost sixty. Did it make any money? I hope not. You know that's a very good question. We can look it up really quick. Uh, hopefully the viewers will bear with me for one second. Sure, uh, they're bearing. They're bearing. They're bearing. They're bearing. The Heartbreak Kid the remake two thousand two thousand seven. So it's sixteen years ago. In two thousand seven, uh, this movie. 60 million dollar budget six zero right uh, it grossed worldwide 128 now it grossed me tell you that. So actually it it uh it it uh it did well it did well i think it was marketed well although it's gross in the u.s was only 37 so, so apparently it played better overseas well see this is so interesting so it made 120 37 Domestically, it means it made 83, quick math, overseas. No, 93. 63? No, 83. 120, you said? 128. Oh, 128. So 63, so 91. Um, so it made 91. Now, doesn't this put to rest the belief that you and I hear all the time that comedy doesn't travel overseas? That comedy of all comedies did well over... How is that possible? Well, that's an interesting question because I guess Ben Stiller's uh, star was on the rise, perhaps. You yeah, know, that yeah. could have been a big selling point. Uh, it is a bit mystifying. Uh, yes, I, the, the, we do get that a lot that American comedy doesn't travel, but because uh, the, the the language sometimes doesn't play well in Swahili or or uh, right. Basque right. or whatever. I always say this is a country of three hundred thirty million, three hundred forty million people. You get a nice percentage of those people. I don't care if they don't get it in China. I mean, this doesn't really bother me. It seems right. It is that well. Here's what I would hesitate to throw in, or not hesitate to throw in. I, I would assume that very few people who saw that movie in this country and elsewhere had ever seen the original, right? Oh. Wouldn't you? Right? Because oh, yeah. there's no way if you saw the original that you could ever, if you've seen the trailer, ever rush out to see the remake i mean I, it's just weird to me i don't get it i don't get you know, it the concept of remakes which which are everywhere hollywood pretty much these days is all about sequels prequels and remakes and of course franchise pictures but remakes very seldom work uh my friend jeff hershaw we and i were talking the other day about psycho gus van sant right. made a psycho remake scene oh, for scene. scene for scene i remember i yeah, know and nobody went to see it nobody no. cared no, uh, it, it, making there, there, it like a, I mean, it was so it was nuts to remake that not. movie. What was that? What was the point? Just to prove that he could do it? I mean, it was made. It was absurd. It is absurd, and you know, in the science fiction world, we have been subjected to some of the worst remakes. The Day the Earth Stood Still, one of my favorite science fiction movies, a terrible remake. The Time Machine, one of my favorite science fiction movies, a right. terrible remake. 
Um, God, uh, Village, Village of the Dam, not a great remake from John Carpenter, who's usually pretty reliable. Well, thinking about the heartbreak of the original, see, to me, what it suggests, when they remade the movie, they did not understand what made the movie hilarious. I mean, yes, they're lucky to hit Ben Stiller, excuse me, at the top of his game, I guess, at the time. That would explain why I did see. Only reason I can, I can look, he himself apologized to like me. What else do you need to know? The guy was in the movie, hated it. And $120 million later, people saw it. That's just bizarre to me. But it tells me they didn't get what made the movie so iconic, which was the casting, which was genius, and the screenplay, which was genius, and the directing. Who directed the remake? I hate to ask, but do you know? Let's see. Uh, the original was directed by Bobby. F I mean, the remake was directed by Bobby and Peter Farrelly, the Farrelly brothers. Okay, there you go. And they they so actually have a reputation, too, so that probably helped the box office. Uh, yeah, maybe, I maybe. guess. I Although guess, people but, don't go see directors unless it's Quentin Tarantino or Spielberg. Or, or no, Spielberg, very right. right. No, so it's very, very true. It's just, it's just weird to, Anna, we've, we, you and I've discussed this off camera many, many times, to take something that's pretty close to perfect, even though your wife hated it. Thank God she loved you. But <laughs> even though you love, even though you love the movie, uh, it, it is bizarre as to what would impel anybody to remake that movie, knowing how perfect it was at the time. Why would you see my feeling always is find another screenplay. You put Ben Stiller in it. Don't call it the Heartbreak Kid. What's the point? No, it's, it's, it's a good point. You know, it's the same reason about Gus Van Sant and Psycho. Why remake a classic? Right. And then there's 12,000 stories out there. Of course. It's of course. So yeah, it's it just because, again, here's my feeling. If you saw the original, and you had any idea what the remake was like, if you saw the trailer or you heard about it or somehow you had a sense of what it was going to be, you would never, ever see it, see the remake. But if you hadn't seen the original, why would you go see a crappy movie? I, I don't see the advantage. It's just weird to me. By the way, I'm going uh, to uh, pause for a second because Ben, uh, my producer, and I want to show the trailer for the original. Neil Simon wrote it. Elaine May directed it. The Heartbreak Kid. It's just plain old-fashioned corny lingo, sir. Uh, I have fallen head over heels with your Kelly here. Uh, it, it just, you know, it didn't take me long to make up my mind. One good look did it, actually. I said you're lying in my spot. Oh, you are this terrific girl! You are this terrific <laughs> Now, there is a slight complication. Uh, I happen to be a newlywed. We're coming, Miami! Miami Beach, here we come! Here we come, Miami, Miami Beach! You may have seen her around the pool. Lenny! She's a nice girl, but just uh, not, not, not really my type. I put cream on. Uh, I married her because I, I thought it was the decent thing to do. Tell me it's wonderful, Lenny. I just said it. How many times you want me to say it? If you wouldn't keep asking me so much, you would have heard me say it. It's my plan, just as soon as I uh, work out this messy business here, to uh, to follow you out to Minnesota. The current temperature in Minneapolis is three degrees below zero. It's two degrees below in St. Paul and four below at the airport. And to uh, lay claim to your, your lovely daughter here. I love it. I love it. All my life, I wanted to be in a place like this. 
with a girl like you playing a game like this. I, I would like I would like to know, uh, in all candor, how you feel about what I've said, and uh, to ask if I have your approval. Not if they tied me to a horse and pulled me 40 miles by my tongue. Well, that's, that's an honest answer, sir. So that that that's that's the movie right there. That that trailer is so wonderful. It kind of sets up the setup, which I thought was really nice. And again, people, if you can be patient, I think we'll eventually see this movie. In the meantime, you might be able to find some of it on YouTube. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I, I well, look online. There's companies every hour and a half that somehow obtain these things. I mean, I don't want to endorse piracy, but for five dollars. I don't know who gets the money is some putts with a camera that he, I don't know where he got it and how he, but I got it. And it's, a, it's an amazing copy. I'm usually not that guy, but I wanted it so badly. And of course, by the way, I've never watched it since I got it probably seven years ago. Cause I want to watch it with somebody who would, who would get it. We, we, you and I really have to watch it. Oh together. yeah. No, no, we definitely have to watch that. And we have to watch uh, the Phil Silver's movie, a thousand and one nights with your friend, Alan. We got definitely going to be a, a good night to comedy. We have been we have been discussing the Heartbreak Kid. Billy and I are are um, davening at the altar of the Heartbreak Kid because it is one of the great comedy movies of all time and deserved deserved a night on Saturday night at the movies. Billy, are we done? We're done. We're we're almost done. I was just about to thank you. Oh my God! Did You're you welcome. Wanna, did, did you want? Did you want to give a plug for something? Of course, I know no, what you're just, doing. I just wanted to say that we should explain what the word Dobbin means because, you know, there may be some people out there who uh, who don't know what it means. Pray. Exactly. exactly. I've been doing a lot of that lately. I've become very religious. I want the, I want the writer's strike to end now so we right. can all go back to work and sell something funny so we can We're, bring back the laughter. I agree. Would Eat Love Dobbin have done well as a movie? Probably not, right? I no, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. Just, <laughs> just wanted, just wanted, just wanted to mention that. Uh, anyway, this was so much fun. You know, you and I have talked about this. I mentioned before many, many times. And I don't you wish there was a movie in the theaters now that you could rush out to see that you knew was going to make you laugh for an hour forty-seven minutes or however long that film was. There's nothing. There's nothing. When was, crazy. The last, when was the last time you were in a movie theater laughing for a hundred, an hour and 47? I can tell you. Borat. And you know how long ago that was? And by the way, that contravenes everything you and I talk about. It's every filthy bathroom joke, sex, crip, you know, just horrible feces. There was something about, I don't know what it was, the purity of his character. You know, you bought into it right away. You knew that he was making fun of all those morons, which was fun, a lot of fun. Uh, and the commitment to his character was incredible. I mean, I laughed, my, and I took my parents, who were not young when I took them. And they were, we went to the theater in New York because it was pouring outside. I knew that the movie was playing close by. It was pouring. I didn't want my father's shoes to get any wetter than they already were because he was sloshing around Manhattan. And we went, they were laughing harder than anybody in the theater. I'm serious. <laughs> I've never been prouder of my parents. It was so great. 
they were howling. I was sure that my father would burn down the theater on 42nd Street, and he went crazy. So uh, I think that's the last one. And that's quietly, what, 17 years ago? How long is something like that? Okay, so that's uh, thank God for um, IMDb I Pro. We they we we they should sponsor us. We're always mentioning IMDb. Uh, Borat, Borat was Borat was two thousand six. Two thousand six. So I'm right. Seventeen years. Seven. How's that humanly possible? No, there's nothing. I'm serious. There's nothing now. It's a whole different kind of comedy. It's scatological. I get it, but that is the last time I laughed that hard continuously for the full length of the movie. I mean, it was unbelievable. My God. But I don't even, I can't think of, well, no, no, no. And, and we've talked about this. Uh, and this was before Borat, my cousin Vinny. But that's way longer. Way long like that, exactly. So. You have been, you have been watching Saturday Night at the Movies. There you go. We're on the, uh, we're on the Amazon, Apple, and Spotify platforms and more places soon. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Thank you, everybody. And I hope you all get to see the Heartbreak Kids soon because it's a lot of fun. Thanks, Billy. Hi, my pleasure.